recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So I guess we're in the middle, you guys are in the middle, or some of you are in the middle of a series on the precepts. And the precepts are, are the, the training rules that form the basis for Buddhist ethical practice. Um, and tonight's, the, the precept of concern or of interest is um, characterized as don't steal. Um, for those of you who are new to the precepts, there are five of them. And they're usually characterized as they are in the, in the titles for these talks. Don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in harmful sexuality, don't speak falsely or don't lie, and don't use drugs or alcohol for the purpose of heedlessness or to the extent of heedlessness or the cause heedlessness. Sort of ambiguous, but heedlessness is in there. And so, so are drugs and alcohol, so you can put them together as you like. As, when they're stated that way, some, sometimes it's kind of hard to distinguish them from the commandments. And we have, in our culture, we've got you know, a lot of embedded conditioning about commandment thinking. I mean, if you look at the commandments, I don't know them all, but there's four of them in the middle. Don't steal, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and don't bear false witness. Sounds pretty similar. The same rules were the, were the, the, the rules of conduct for the Jains, or the Jains, who were living contemporaneously with the Buddha. They were the four vows of the Jains. So the Buddha wasn't making these up, these, these, four, these four rules. And I guess the, the question is, how do we distinguish what the Buddha was getting at from commandment thinking, which is thinking about rules and you know, rule-based rule-based thinking, and I'm, I'm thinking uh, a couple of things. It's just been fascinating for me to think about this for the past uh, few weeks in anticipation. Um, there's, a, there's a really fascinating little uh, sutta in the Majjhima where one of the Buddha's followers is listening to another ascetic, and this other ascetic his name is Ugahamana. He says, I describe an individual endowed with four qualities as being consummate in what is skillful, foremost in what is skillful, and invincible contemplative attained to the highest attainments. Which four? There is the case where he sees no evil act, he does no evil action with his body, speaks no evil action, speaks no evil speech, the lines are long resolves on no evil resolve and maintains himself with no evil means of livelihood. If you're familiar with the Eightfold Path, these are the elements of the Eightfold Path. Sounds good, eh? Well, you know, I was reading along this and I was thinking, sounds good. An individual endowed with these four qualities I designate as being consummate in what is skillful and invincible contemplative attained to the highest attainments. So the Buddha's disciple goes to talk to the Buddha and sees what the Buddha has to say about it. And the Buddha says, well, in this case, 
According to Ugahamana's words, a stupid baby boy lying on its back is consummate as what is skillful, foremost in what is skillful and invincible contempt, contemplative attained to the highest attainments. I'm thinking, that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> we'll get back to what the Buddha suggests are, are the, uh, the four attainments, because of course he has, he has an opinion. But he's not saying that ethical conduct, that moral practice is irrelevant. In fact, in the Dhammapada, the phrase comes up, Rouse yourself, don't be negligent, live the Dhamma, a life of good conduct. It's interesting, it's the heart of the Dhamma. Live the Dharma, a life of good conduct. One who lives the Dharma is happy in this world and the next. How do we get from this rule-following stuff, the commandment thinking, to what the Buddha has in mind. Don't steal as a commandment or as a rule is fairly simple. I mean, if we lie in bed all day, we don't kill anybody, we don't steal anything, we don't get, engage in, well, commandment thing, adultery, and we don't bear false witness, we, we're cool. And, and in, a, in a way, um, don't steal... There's a little bit of ambiguity here because the word usually means don't take what's, you know, belongs to somebody else. But, you know, there are phrases, stealing a kiss, stealing away, um, stealing second. <laughs> There's something, you know, it's, it's not quite straight up. The word in Pali, actually the, the, the precepts in Pali, um, the, word, the, the word that's translated as don't kill, or don't steal, I'm sorry, don't steal, adinadana means not to take what's not freely given. So dana, which is to give, adana, not give, adinadana, not take what's not given. And that's a little bit more oriented towards well, for the first precept, for example, the word is panatipata, which means not to strike at, not just not to kill. But if we're not taking what's not freely given, it's not just not taking things. It could be taking someone's attention. Sometimes my wife is working, and I think, should I interrupt her with my, whatever's on my mind? Do I take her attention without it being freely given? You can talk about one's time. You can talk about taking things that are not freely given. The monastics are out of training. They don't even take food unless it's offered to them. If a table is filled with food, that has to be offered. So we think, well, maybe this is closer to the mark, not taking what's not freely given. And we think, well, maybe it's trying to rein in our tendency towards greed and, and taking. But you can take what's not freely given out of malice as well, to deny somebody access to something. You know. So it's not just greed. And actually, I can think of times when, not taking, when taking what is not freely given is the compassionate thing to do. 
Taking a gun from a child? Car keys from a drunk? Freedom from someone who cannot control harmful behavior towards others? So sometimes, well, there's some ambiguity here. Not taking what's not freely given. And even at a slightly deeper level, there's just not grasping. So the, the gesture of the heart towards grasping, holding, taking. We're talking about something, an intentional thing. The Buddha was, was concerned about intention. So the rules in this case are sort of like the raft. The Buddha says that his teachings, the Dharma, is a raft to carry one to liberation, not to be clung to. So the rules, the rules are tools. And to sort of understand how we get to, um, we get to, to this, I want to explore a little bit the relationship of the precepts uh, to the four truths, the four noble truths, because the precepts, these rules, grow out of excuse me, the elements of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And so as part of the Eightfold Path, sila is rooted in the Buddhist, directly in the Buddhist teachings about, about suffering. The Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And he articulates this teaching through what, what we have come to, hear, to know as the, the four noble truths, or Stephen Batchelor calls them the four tasks. I think of them as four teachings. But however you think of them, these are the way the Buddha articulates his, his insight into the nature of suffering. The first of these, the first of these truths is generally described as the truth of suffering. But the Buddha doesn't actually define. It's not a dictionary definition. The word he's, he's translating is dukkha, and it refers, uh, it's, a, it's a hard word to tra- translate in one word, but it refers to the unsatisfactoriness, the dissatisfaction, the, the suffering, stress, but again, the Buddha wasn't, didn't define it. It wasn't a dictionary definition. He made a list of experiences which are dukkha. It starts with, and this is out of, out of the, the first sermon, the, the, the first sutta, the first teaching, the turning of the wheel. First element, birth. Birth is suffering. You know, we might not remember, but the story is that we all, the first thing we all said was no. Birth, aging, sickness, death, existential things, part of life. Nobody misses out on all of these things, any of these things. Pain, you know, sorrow, distress. Lamentation, despair, all on our dance cards. Nothing we would order up if we were running the show. Not getting what you want. 
getting what you don't want and losing what you cherish. This is a set of unpleasant things. There isn't, there isn't a pleasant one in the bunch. And, to, you know, it's, uh, these things are not satisfactory. We, we sort of don't like them. And what makes, what makes them suffering, they're just unsatisfactory on their own. But what makes them dukkha is that we engage them and respond to them with, well, in, the, in the, the language of the text, with tanha, which is translated as thirst or craving. It's a kind of desire. Sometimes it's hard to describe subjectively. Let me, let me sort of suggest my under, how my understanding of it works. We have inherited bodies that have evolved um, my gosh, since the first cells, and we have these tendencies in ourselves, comes with the package. We didn't invent it. Survival, want to, want to, to be alive, want to stay alive. We want to become. Bawatanha, becoming something. We, I think of it as ambition. In order to become something, we have to be around. We have this desire to be around. Bawatanha, to become something, to feel ambition. We like, our, and this is biologically based, we like our experience and we want that future to be pleasant. Kamatanha, sensually pleasant. We want our experience generally to be pleasant. That's eh, okay now and then, but boy, if it's not pleasant on an ongoing basis, it can be very disturbing. Partly because the way our body interprets what's good for us is pleasant. Unpleasant, painful, not good for us. Vibhavatana, we want that unpleasant stuff to go away. And kamatanha is the is the, the desire for pleasant for our pleasant for our experience to be pleasant. There's different levels to desire here. So for example, wanting wanting a boat. As you're flipping through the pages of yachting magazine is different than wanting the boat when you've fallen off the back of the boat in the Molokai Straits and the boat is sailing away from you. Right? Different levels of desire. Even though we might say desire in both cases. You know, looking at uh, the dessert menu is different than waiting for the truck to arrive in the refugee camp for your, for your, your food. It's a very different kind of desire. So the tanha is that underlying, we feel it as a need for our experience to be pleasant. It's not just we like something pleasant. We, there's this feeling, it's unpleasant, it's unsatisfactory. And oh my gosh, everything in that first list, unpleasant. So when any of them happens, what happens? We respond um, you know, it happens, it happens automatically. Neuroscience is, you know, one of, the, one of the earliest striking experiments that the neuroscience people have done. Something was done, I guess, maybe, oh, 25 years ago now at USF, a guy named Benjamin Libet was able to measure and, 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 and um, describe how 
an intention arises in our organism about a fifth of a second, 200 milliseconds, before we know it, before we become aware that that's what we're about to do. You know, they would measure, you know, the imp, they, could, they can put the helmets on and you know, watch when you decide to punch the button and watch when you become aware of punch. So this stuff happens, it unfolds in response to our experience. Our bodies in this way, our organisms are operating on, on their own. It creates a problem for um, um, creates a problem for people who are worried about free will. But I'm not so sure it's a problem for the Buddha. The Buddha wasn't particularly interested in metaphysical issues like that anyway. He was interested in how to end suffering. And so the trick is, I, I, the, the phrase that, uh, that I use is, in, in my own mind is, recognize and abandon. When you recognize the impulses of tanha, when you recognize those things arising in yourself, you just sort of step back from them. Sort of like the, the cop, move along here, nothing to see, just step back from that desire. Now, the Buddha talks about how, in, in, uh, uh, how before he was awakened, he noticed, he, he noticed that he could d- divide his, his impulses, his intentions into two kinds. Those that were for the benefit of himself and others and those that were not. And he decided to just not take up those that were not for his benefit and for the benefit of others. Recognize and abandon. So we do this This is what the, in our, in our um, practice, to be free. The third of the truths, or the third of the teachings, is that the cessation of dukkha is the cessation of tanha, of that craving. So dukkha is a composite experience, unpleasant and a resistance to it, are not wanting it to be this way. And usually when we flail around in this way, we make things worse. We add to whatever pain there is, whatever other anguish we, we do in resistance. We say no. And so we put our fists through the dashboard of the car. And then, of course, it doesn't do anything about whatever was frustrating you, but it does make things worse. You know, haven't we all done, maybe not through the dashboard of the car, I don't know why that, but, you know, you know that no resistance. We make things worse. And I think in some very important ways, the Buddha's teaching is don't make things worse. Just not, it's, it's you know, pretty them up if you can. You know, make them nicer if you can. And cultivate the mind so that we can figure out how to do that. So the fourth of the truths, the fourth of the, the elements of, the, of the, uh, the four truths is the path, the eightfold path. And it's a, it's a way of being without suffering, without dukkha. It's not a onefold path. 
And I, in my group in Davis, we like to think of it as a, uh, a basketball. It's the eightfold basketball. Here's the eightfold basketball. It's a sphere. It weighs about it weighs a couple pounds. It's about 15 inches across or so. Filled with compressed air, made of rubber. It's brown. Got dimples on it. You have black stripe around. Is that eight? Is that the eightfold basketball? You know. But you can't just play with the brown. Distinguishing one aspect of the basketball, the Eightfold Path is a complete path. It's a unified path that we we discriminate different aspects of it for purposes of study and practice. But it's a, a unified way of being without what? Without dukkha. It's the path of abandoning tanha as it arises in our experience. Tanha is going to continue to arise, even, you know, just because you awaken doesn't mean the amygdala stops functioning, stops firing. So the trick is to recognize when it's doing the shooting and you just sort of wait it out, I guess. So right understanding of the Eightfold Path. For those of you who aren't really familiar, I'll just sort of rattle off the items and then talk about them. Right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the word right is not, you know, it's this right or wrong business. The word is sama, and it, it means what's appropriate or skillful. It's, it's the understanding that enables the abandonment of tanha. So that when tanha shows up, we go, ah, I've seen you, Mara. Right intention is the intention, well, classically, renunciation is the primary intention. Right intention. The abandonment of tanha and its products, craving and and, uh, the elements that it gives rise to. Renunciation, abandonment, and, and also the Brahma Viharas would be right. But those are intentions that are not rooted in self, not rooted in the organism, not rooted in those, you know, what we've inherited biologically, evolutionary inheritance. And what is the, what is the default intention? The default intentions are tanha, craving, wanting. Those are the default So right intention is recognizing and abandoning. Recognize and abandon. And then we have speech, action, and livelihood. Speech and action are the elements of the path that are rendered into the precepts. So the Buddhists, under right right speech, there's not to speak falsely or incorrectly. Tanjev translates it as incorrect. And in that sense, it, make, it makes sense because it's speech that promotes dukkha. Now, there are parallels to the don't steal in the other precepts as well. Because you can speak truthfully out of 
an intention to hurt, and you can lie out of compassion. What's important about the speech is whether it promotes dissatisfaction, stress, suffering, or whether it attenuates it. Action falls out into the don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in harmful sexual activity, and not to use drugs and alcohol to the point of heedlessness. But there are ambiguities in all these. I mean, hospice, do you use drugs for heedlessness? So they're not black and white rules, they're, they're the raft that carries us across, not to be clung to, but to be, but to be used. So the trick is to learn to monitor ourselves and conduct an intervention when we find ourselves about to launch ourselves into a manifestation of tanha, craving of some kind. I like to, I'm, I'm walking, I have a dog, I have a puppy. She's not, she's a year, but she's a lab, and so she's really still puppy. So I, the, the way I'm working with her training is sort of like this. So I was walking along the other day, and about a oh, half block ahead of us, there was a couple walking a dog, their dog. And so my dog, who's walking really nicely next to me, starts to get excited. She starts by bouncing up and down. You know, she sees the dog, and it's, oh boy, a dog. And then pretty soon she's like, rarf, rarf, and barking and pulling. And, you know. and then I have to turn around and say, knock it off. She looks at me and she, she's, she's actually pretty good. But the intervention could come earlier. If it came when she started to bounce up and down, well, then she wouldn't get to the barking or the tugging or the, you know, the craziness. So the trick is for me to notice just how, you know, just when she gets on that trajectory and to intervene more, more quickly. So our mindfulness practice is training us how to be able to recognize tanha and its products when, you know, when they're still unexpressed. All right, speech, action, and livelihood, the way we live in the world. Speech, action, three elements of the Eightfold Path. I actually think speech, action, and livelihood, I think of them sort of you know, when the Buddha says, whether standing, walking, seated, or lying down, it's, this is not, you know, legal words. It's not like, well, what if I'm bending over? You know, or if I'm leaning against a wall, what about that? It sort of means all the time. You know, it's whatever you're doing. You know, it's the same speech, action, livelihood. It's really how you're living your life. This is, you know, sila, the sila elements are the raft, They're the Buddha's raft. And, you know, we, we use the, the meditation training to help set up our sila practice. You know, don't steal, as a rule, useful when you're, when you're talking to children. You can tell a child, don't cross in the middle of the street, cross at the corners, right? That's what 
That's what I did, tell my kids. But is there anybody here who can't cross in the middle of the street? You know, we get a little older, we can figure out how to do that. Don't, don't, don't kill, don't steal. You know, if you're tr retraining child soldiers, you can start with don't kill. You know, basic. Um, not taking what's not freely given, but you know, the difference between taking candy from a baby and taking a gun from a baby is intention. That element of the path, right intention. Intention, speech, action, livelihood. It's half, half of the path. And at the deepest level, you know, we're back at don't grasp. Just don't you know, recognize that feeling. We can do it. There's, there's different ways of doing it. We, wanna, we can recognize tanha in the body. So this is a, trying to figure out how to, to practice with don't steal, don't take what's not freely given, or not to act in ways that cause suffering. So you recognize it in the body. So if you take a second and notice when you breathe in and breathe out, you can tell the difference between when you breathe in and breathe out. Anybody not able to do that? But, but if I were to ask you to explain that difference, to describe the difference, how do you how do you describe the difference between breathing in and the feeling of it? Not so simple. Now, if you try to do it, just you know, think of what you would say if you were to stand up and say, well, the difference between breathing in and it's... But you can know it directly, even if you can't articulate it. You can just know the feeling. Hunger. Hunger is a feeling in the body... We usually, we don't even, we feel hungry. I'm hungry. We see identification shows up right there with the feeling of hunger shows up and we go, I'm hungry. So self shows up. But actually, what does hunger feel like? We don't often explore that. How do you know, how do you know you're hungry? Well, I just, when I see the potato chips, I just can't resist them. I don't know. How do you know you're hungry? Potato chips. Why did I think potato chips? Salt and fat? I'm in trouble. <laughs> but how do you know you're hungry? I mean, you can actually study. It's easy enough to study. Just don't eat afternoon. Plan to not eat afternoon one day. And by three or four in the afternoon, you can start to... And, and the stories that go on in the mind... You know, well, I guess I've learned this. I'm ready to eat now. <laughs> you know. So the mind adjusts, you know, the whole... And it's just Tana playing out. And you can, you, you, know, you can look at where in the body. How do I know? What is the feeling? Where is it? What is it like? Anger. We can, we can study anger, too. Irritation. You know, sometimes... I mean, where do we actually feel that? And we can actually do that with tanha as well. Once we know what to look for, we're looking for those, those 
they're, they're very deep desires. You were talking to me about flying, somebody, oh, there you are, talking about flying from Minnesota and sitting in the plane and the plane being uncomfortable and how, you know, you sit there and you try to be with the discomfort and it's hard. The body doesn't want to do that. It wants the discomfort to go away. How, you know, how do you feel that in the body? It's that same kind of ineffable experience that's very difficult to put into words. You can't put into words direct experience, really. We can talk about it, but put into words the taste of a banana. Taste of a banana is ineffable as it gets. You know, taste of a jackfruit, how do you, you know, you've never had a jackfruit, try to describe a jackfruit to someone who hasn't had, it's just, well, sort of banana, sort of pineapple, sort of, anybody do better? <laughs> sort of a thin kind of, really, I mean, does it convey the taste? You know what I'm talking about? You know. So the trick is, the trick is um, to learn to recognize tanha, and you can feel it in the body. It's the function of Mindfulness in our daily life is to be able to recognize these impulses which, and particularly not grasping, not clutching, not holding, not taking what's not given. And learning this is not, is not particularly simple. There's a, a, um, a model of learning. It's called the conscious competence learning something matrix. It's four levels of learning, four stages of learning. I heard this from Rick Hansen a month ago, and it just, it, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is fabulous. There are four layers, levels of learning. The first level is unconscious incompetence. You just don't even know what you don't know. Remember Donald Rumsfeld? (laughs) A bad example. (laughs) You're just unknown unknowns, you know? You're going to learn to drive, and you think, well, no big deal. I've seen people drive, they just, you know, and then you have learned there are all these, or learn to fly even more. You know, there's all these controls. You don't even know that you had to, I mean, unconscious incompetence. And then there's, Conscious incompetence. You know you don't know what, and you start trying to figure out what do I need to, how do I turn it on even? What do these dials mean? This is when you you start to recognize that something needs to be learned. Yeah, I can hit a curveball. You don't even know what they do. First time you take a swing, when my son was 12, he said, you can't hit my curveball. And I thought, well, yeah. But he was right. (laughs) Not knowing, recognizing you don't know. And then there's conscious competence. That's where you put into practice particular um, exercises, particular, it's learning behaviors. So you don't know how to roll your fingers over while you're playing a scale on the piano. And after a while you practice. And then the last, the fourth is unconscious competence. You know, when Roger Federer plays tennis, he doesn't 
even he's not consciously thinking about what's he's just reacting. The ball takes less than a second to come over the net. He's got to put his racket on it and place it somewhere. My gosh, I can't even get the ball in the court on the other side of the net. You know? But without even, he's thinking strategy. Musicians aren't thinking, well, you use the third finger on this, you know. It's just you're, you're feeling the music and you're thinking the music and it comes out because there's competence that's unconscious. We're unconsciously competent when we drive. We don't even think about changing a lane. We just, although, you know, we really don't know. We don't pay, we, we don't pay much attention to our driving, it's completely. If you this this is there's a, a neuroscientist in uh, Baylor, Texas, and you got to give somebody props for being a neuro, neuroscientist in Texas. <laughs> he he said, just pretend you're holding the steering wheel of the car, and do what you would do to change lanes. Just give it a try, and see what you do. If you want to try it, if not, I'll show you what most people just. Just change one lane over to the, to the right. Move the, the wheel the way you would. Go one, one lane to the right. People usually go this, and then they go back. Anybody do anything else? Yeah, you probably wouldn't crash. If you go like this and turn straight, you're going you're gonna to turn and go straight off the road. <laughs> really? You turn, and then you turn back. But we don't, we're not even conscious, unconscious competence. And that's really where we want to get with the practice of the precepts. We want to get to unconscious competence, where we can live the life of the Dharma, a life of good conduct, without even thinking. We recognize those, you know, tanha shows up, craving shows up, the desire for something to grasp, to take, to steal, to take what's not given. It's the grasping at the bottom. Um, We can perform those without conscious attention. So when the Buddha was talking to, to, uh, dare I call this guy, Panchakanga, his buddy, his student, Now, an individual endowed with which ten qualities is one whom I would describe as being consummate in what is skillful, foremost in what is skillful, and invincible contemplative, attained to the highest attainments? He's endowed with the right view of one beyond training. That phrase, beyond training, beyond conscious competence. The one beyond training is unconsciously competent. He's endowed with the right resolve of one beyond training, one who automatically abandons those impulses that are rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. Tantanha. One who is endowed with the right speech of one beyond training. So it's not so much, you know, when the Nazis knock on the door and say, is Anne Frank here? Do you say, what do you mean by is? <laughs> Didn't work for Bill Clinton. 
Really, it didn't, you know. know. Or do you just say, no? Who? I mean, or you can speak, you know, I I have a a dear friend who does a lot of work in hospice, and she'd been working with this woman for five or six weeks, and on the morning of the day that she was to die, she was around her bed, and the woman looked at her and said, I know you're a Buddhist chaplain, but you do believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, don't you? My friend said, of course. She said, and she said, of course, she just saw this woman relax because they'd become friendly and she didn't, in her mind, she would be going to hell otherwise. So she gave her that gift. The right livelihood of one beyond training. That's a little tougher, more complex. But it doesn't talk too much about right livelihood. Except to say you shouldn't deal in meat, you shouldn't deal in poisons, you shouldn't deal in weapons, you shouldn't deal in humans. But, you know, that that would rule out managing a Safeway. (laughs) So it's a little more complex. The right effort of one beyond training. Right effort... In the, in the context of the four teachings or the four truths would be the effort to ab- abandon tanha, arisen craving, to keep craving that hasn't arisen from arising, and to cultivate the brahma-viharas, those, those states that are uh, helpful, kind, compassionate. Right mindfulness? My mindfulness the mindfulness that enables one to abandon tanha. So it's the recognition of tanha when it appears in us, when it arises in us. And the stability, right, concentration, the stability of our attention so that we don't just, you know, our mind doesn't flit off every, like it does when we're walking around. the one beyond training, an individual endowed with these ten qualities I designate as being consummate. It's one for whom these things are unconsciously done. So our, our trick is to use the precepts, use the elements of the Eightfold Path as the raft to, the, to, to liberation. And Sila, I think, the ethical practice is our raft, not to be clung to in the sense of rules, to be applied, but in, in the sense of uh, instruction pointing at our experience so we can learn how to recognize and abandon the elements of greed, which lead to stealing and taking what's not freely given, and, and to grasping. So there various levels to, to address this on. And I think that focusing on the intention and on the fact that these, a lot of this is just, is just happening on its own. You know, our body reacts automatically, faster than we can think. Somebody cuts in on you on the freeway, 
Your foot hits the brake before you think. You don't think, wow, I think I should put my foot. It just happens. And then the adrenaline kicks in. You know, it happens really quickly, about a fifth of a second before we know. So the the practice of the precepts, the practice of not stealing, not taking what's not freely given, not grasping, holding, at all those levels are the raft for liberation because living the Dharma is living a life of good conduct. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.